Section 12 of A Tale of a Tub by Jonathan Swift. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Conclusion Going too long is a cause of abortion as effectual, though not so frequent, as going too short, and holds true especially in the labours of the brain. Well fare the heart of that noble Jesuit who first adventured to confess in print that books must be suited to their several seasons, like dress and diet and diversions, and better fare our noble notion for refining upon this among other French modes. I am living fast to see the time when a book that misses its tide shall be neglected as the moon by day, or like mackerel a week after the season. No man has more nicely observed our climate than the bookseller who bought the copy of this work. He knows to a tittle what subjects will best go off in a dry year, and which is proper to expose foremost when the weather-glass has fallen too much rain. When he had seen this treatise and consulted his almanac upon it, he gave me to understand that he had manifestly considered the two principal things, which were the bulk and the subject, and found it would never take but after a long vacation, and then only in case it should happen to be a hard year for turnips. Upon which I desired to know, considering my urgent necessities, what he thought might be acceptable this month. He looked westward and said, I doubt we shall have a bit of bad weather. However, if you could prepare some pretty little banter, but not in verse, or a small treatise upon, then it would run like wildfire. But if it hold up, I already have hired an author to write something against Dr. Bentley, which I am sure will turn to account. At length we agreed upon this expedient, that when a customer comes to one of these, and desires in confidence to know the author, he will tell him very privately as a friend, naming whichever of the which shall happen to be that week in the vogue, and if Durfey's last play should be in course, I had as leave he may be the person as Congreve. This I mention because I am wonderfully well acquainted with the present relish of courteous readers, and have often observed with singular pleasure that a fly driven from a honey-pot will immediately, with very good appetite, alight and finish his meal on an excrement. I have one word to say upon the subject of profound writers, who are grown very numerous of late, and I know very well the judicious world is resolved to list me in that number. I conceive, therefore, as to the business of being profound, that it is with writers as with wells. A person with good eyes can see to the bottom of the deepest, provided any water be there, and that often when there is nothing in the world at the bottom besides dryness and dirt, though it be but a yard and half underground, it shall pass, however for wondrous deep, upon no wiser a reason than because it is wondrous dark. I am now trying an experiment, very frequent among modern authors, which is to write upon nothing, when the subject is utterly exhausted to let the pen still move on, by some called the ghost of wit, delighting to walk after the death of its body. And to say the truth, there seems to be no part of knowledge in fewer hands than that of discerning when to have done. By the time that an author has written out a book, he and his readers are become old acquaintance, and grow very loath to part, so that I have sometimes known it to be in writing as in visiting, where the ceremony of taking leave has employed more time than the whole conversation before. The conclusion of a treatise resembles the conclusion of human life, which has sometimes been compared to the end of a feast, where few are satisfied to depart, ut plenis vitae conviva, for men will sit down after the fullest meal, though it be only to dose or to sleep out the rest of the day. But in this latter I differ extremely from other writers, and shall be too proud if, by all my labours, I can have any ways contributed to the repose of mankind in times so turbulent and unquiet as these. Neither do I think such an employment so very alien from the office of a wit as some would suppose, for among a very polite nation in Greece there were the same temples built and consecrated to sleep and the muses. 
between which two deities they believed the strictest friendship was established. I have one concluding favour to request of my reader, that he will not expect to be equally diverted and informed by every line or every page of this discourse, but give some allowance to the author's spleen and short fits or intervals of dullness as well as his own, and lay it seriously to his conscience whether, if he were walking the streets in dirty weather or a rainy day, he would allow it fair dealing in folks at their ease from a window to criticise his gait and ridicule his dress at such a juncture. In my disposure of employments of the brain, I have thought fit to make invention the master and to give method and reason the office of his lackeys. Cause of this distribution was from observing it my peculiar case to be often under a temptation of being witty upon occasion where I could be neither wise nor sound nor anything to the matter in hand. And I am too much a servant of the modern way to neglect any such opportunities, whatever pains or improprieties I may be at to introduce them. Though I have observed that from a laborious collection of seven hundred and thirty-eight flowers and shining hints the best modern authors digested with great reading into my book of common places i have not been able after five years to draw hook or force into common conversation any more than a dozen of which dozen the one moiety failed of success by being dropped among unsuitable company and the other cost me so many strains and traps and ambushes to introduce that i at length resolved to give it over now this disappointment to discover a secret I must own, gave me the first hint of setting up for an author, and I have since found among some particular friends that is become a very general complaint, and has produced the same effects upon many others. For I have remarked many a towardly word to be wholly neglected or despised in discourse, which hath passed very smoothly with some consideration and esteem after its preferment and sanction in print. But now since by the liberty and encouragement of the press, I am grown absolute master of the occasions and opportunities to expose the talents I have acquired. I already discover that the issues of my observander begin to grow too large for the receipts. Therefore I shall here pause a while, till I find by feeling the world's pulse and my own that it will be of absolute necessity for us both to resume my pen. In some early editions of the Tale of a Tub, Swift added under the title of what follows after section 9 the following sketch for A History of Martin. The history of Martin, giving an account of his departure from Jack and their setting up for themselves, on which account they are obliged to travel and meet many disasters, finding no shelter near Peter's habitation, Martin succeeds in the north, Peter thunders against Martin for the loss of the large revenue he used to receive from thence, Harry Huff sent Martin a challenge in fight which he received, Peter rewards Harry for the pretended victory which encouraged Harry to Huff Peter also, with many other extraordinary adventures of the said Martin, in several places with many considerable persons with a digression concerning the nature, usefulness, and necessity of wars and quarrels. How Jack and Martin, being parted, set up each for himself. How they travelled over hills and dales, met many disasters, suffered much from the good cause, and struggled with difficulties and wants, not having where to lay their head, by all which they afterwards proved themselves to be right father's sons, and Peter to be spurious. Finding no shelter near Peter's habitation, Martin travelled northwards, and finding the Thuringians, neighbouring people, disposed to change, he set up his stage first among them, where, making it his business to cry down Peter's powders, plasters, salves, and drugs, which he had sold a long time at a dear rate, allowing Martin none of the profit, though he had been often employed in recommending and putting them off. The good people, willing to save their pence, began to hearken to Martin's speeches. Our several great lords took the hint, and on the same account declared for Martin, particularly one 
who, not having had enough of one wife, wanted to marry a second, and knowing Peter used not to grant such licences, but at a swinging price, he struck up a bargain with Martin, whom he found more tractable, and assured him he had the same power to allow such things, and most of the other northern lords, for their own private ends, withdrew themselves and their dependence from Peter's authority, and closed in with Martin. How Peter enraged at the loss of such large territories, and consequently of so much revenue, thundered against Martin, and sent out the strongest and most terrible of his bulls to devour him, but this having no effect, and Martin defending himself boldly and dexterously, Peter at last put forth proclamations declaring Martin and all his adherents rebels and traitors, ordaining and requiring all his loving subjects to take up arms, and to kill, burn, and destroy all in every one of them, promising large rewards, etc., upon which ensued bloody wars and desolation. How Harry Huff, Lord of Albion, one of the greatest bullies of those days, sent a cartel to Martin to fight him on a stage at cudgels, quarterstaff, backsword, etc. Hence the origin of that genteel custom of prize-fighting, so well known and practised to this day among those polite islanders, though unknown everywhere else. How Martin, being a bold, blustering fellow, accepted the challenge, how they met and fought, to the great diversion of the spectators, and after giving one another broken heads and many bloody wounds and bruises, how they both drew off victorious, in which their example had been frequently imitated by great clerks and others since that time. How Martin's friends applauded his victory, and how Lord Harry's friends complimented him on the same score, and particularly Lord Peter, who sent him a fine feather for his cap, to be worn by him and his successors as a perpetual mark of his bold defence of Lord Peter's cause. How Harry, flushed with his pretended victory over Martin, began to huff Peter also, but at last downright quarrelled with him about a wench. How some of Lord Harry's tenants, ever fond of changes, began to talk kindly of Martin, for which he mauled them soundly, as he did also those that adhered to Peter. How he turned some out of house and hold, others he hanged or burnt, etc. How Harry Huff, after a deal of blustering, wenching and bullying, died, and was succeeded by a good-natured boy, who, giving way to the general bent of his tents, allowed Martin's notions to spread everywhere, and take deep root in ambition. How after his death the farm fell into the hands of a lady, who was violently in love with Lord Peter. How she purged the whole country with fire and sword, resolved not to leave the name or remembrance of Martin. How Peter triumphed, and set up shops again for selling his own powders, plasters, and salves, which were now declared the only true ones, Martin's being all declared counterfeit. How great numbers of Martin's friends left the country, and travelling up and down in foreign parts, were acquainted with many of Jack's followers, and took a liking to many of their notions and ways, which they afterwards brought back into ambition, now under another landlady, more moderate and more cunning than the former. How she endeavoured to keep friendship both with Peter and Martin, and trimmed for some time between the two, not without countenancing and assisting at the same time many of Jack's followers, but finding no possibility of reconciling all the three brothers, because each would be master and allow no other salves, powers or plasters to be used but his own, she discarded all three, and set up a shop for those of her own farm, well furnished with powders, plasters, salves, and all other drugs necessary, all right and true, composed according to receipts made by physicians and apothecaries of her own creating, which they extracted out of Peter's and Martin's and Jack's receipt books, and of this medley or hodgepodge made up a dispensatory of their own, strictly forbidding any other to be used, and particularly Peter's, from which the greatest part of this new dispensatory was stolen. How the lady, father to confirm this change, wisely imitating her father, degraded Peter from the rank he pretended as eldest brother, 
and set herself in his place as head of the family, and ever after wore her father's old cap with the fine feather he had got from Peter for standing his friend, which has likewise been worn with no small ostentation to this day by all her successors, though declared enemies to Peter. How Lady Bess and her physicians, being told of many defects and imperfections in the new medley, dispensatory resolve on a further alteration to purge it from a great deal of Peter's trash that still remained in it, but were prevented by her death. How she was succeeded by a north country farmer, who pretended great skill in the managing of farms, though he could never govern his own poor little farm, nor yet this large new one after he got it. How this new landlord, to show his valour and dexterity, fought against enchanters, weeds, giants and wilmings, and claimed great honour for his victory. How his successor, no wiser than he, occasioned great disorders by the new methods he took to manage his farms. How he attempted to establish in his northern farm the same dispensatory used in the southern. But miscarried because Jack's powders, pills, salves, and plasters were there in great vogue. Where the author finds himself embarrassed for having introduced into his history a new sect, different from the three he had undertaken to treat of. And how his inviolable respect to the sacred number three obliges him to reduce these four, as he intends to do all other things to that number, and for that end to drop the former Martin, and to substitute in his place Lady Bess's institution, which is to pass under the name of Martin in the sequel of this true history. This weighty point being clear, the author goes on and describes mighty quarrels and squabbles between Jack and Martin, how sometimes the one had the better and sometimes the other, to the great desolation of both farms, till at last both sides concur to hang up the landlord who pretended to die a martyr for Martin, though he had been true to neither side, and was suspected by many to have a great affection for Peter. A digression on the nature, usefulness, and necessity of wars and quarrels. This being a matter of great consequence, the author intends to treat it methodically, and at large in a treatise apart, and here to give only some hints of what his large treatise contains. The state of war, natural to all creatures. War is an attempt to take by violence from others, part of what they have and we want. Every man, fully sensible of his own merit, and finding it not duly regarded by others, has a natural right to take from them all that he thinks due to himself, and every creature, finding its own wants more than those of others, has the same right to take everything its nature requires. Brutes, much more modest in their pretensions this way than men, and mean men more than great ones. The higher one raises his pretensions this way, the more bustle he makes about them, the more success he has, the greater hero. Thus greater souls, in proportion to their superior merit, claim a greater right to take everything from meaner folks. This the true foundation of grandeur and heroism, and of the distinction of degrees among men. War, therefore, necessary to establish subordination and to found cities, kingdoms, etc., as also to purge bodies politic of gross humours. Wise princes find it necessary to have wars abroad to keep peace at home, war, famine and pestilence, the usual cures for corruption in bodies politic. A comparison of these three, the author is to write a panegyric on each one of them. The greatest part of mankind loves war more than peace. There are but few and mean-spirited that live in peace with all men. The modest and meek of all kinds always pray to those of more noble or stronger appetites. The inclination to war universal, those that cannot or dare not make war in person employ others to do it for them. This maintains bullies, bravos, cutthroats, lawyers, soldiers, etc. 
most professions would be useless if all were peaceable. Hence brutes want neither smiths nor lawyers, magistrates nor joiners, soldiers or surgeons. Brutes, having but narrow appetites, are incapable of carrying on or perpetuating war against their own species, or of being led out in troops and multitudes to destroy one another. These prerogatives propor to man alone. The excellency of human nature, demonstrated by the vast train of appetites, passions, wants, etc., that attend it, is a matter to be more fully treated in the author's panegyric on mankind. History of Martin continued. How Jack, having got rid of the old landlord, set up another to his mind, quarrelled with Martin, and turned him out of doors. How he pillaged all his shops, and abolished his whole dispensatory. How the new landlord laid about him, mauled Peter, worried Martin, and made the whole neighbourhood tremble. How Jack's friends fell out among themselves, split into a thousand parties, turned all things topsy-turvy, till everybody grew weary of them, and at last the blustering landlord dying, Jack was kicked out of doors, a new landlord brought in, and Martin re-established. How this new landlord let Martin do what he pleased, and Martin agreed to do everything his pious landlord desired, provided Jack might be kept low. With several efforts Jack made up to raise his, up his head, but all in vain, till at last the landlord died, and was succeeded by one who was a great friend to Peter, who, to humble Martin, gave Jack some liberty. How Martin grew enraged at this, called in a foreigner, and turned out the landlord on which Jack concurred with Martin, because this landlord was entirely devoted to Peter, into whose arms he threw himself and left his country. How the new landlord secured Martin in the full possession of his former rights, but would not allow him to destroy Jack, who had always been his friend. How Jack got up his head in the north, and put himself in possession of a whole canton, to the great discontent of Martin, who, finding also that some of Jack's friends were allowed to live and get their bread in the south parts of the country, grew highly discontented with the new landlord he had called in to his assistance. How this landlord kept Martin in order, upon which he fell into a raging fever, and swore he would hang himself, or join him with Peter, unless Jack's children were all turned out to starve. Of several attempts to cure Martin, and make peace between him and Jack, that they might unite against Peter, but all made ineffectual by the great address of a number of Peter's friends, that herded among Martins, and appeared the most zealous for his interest. How Martin, getting abroad in this mad fit, looked so like Peter in his air and dress, and talked so like him, that many of the neighbours could not distinguish the one from the other, especially when Martin went up and down, strutting in Peter's armour, which he had borrowed to fight Jack, what remedies were used to cure Martin's distemper. Here the author, being seized with a fit of dullness to which he was very subject, after having read a poetical epistle of Trestu, entirely composed his senses, so that he has not written a line since. N.B. Some things that follow this, not in the M.S., but seem to have been written since, to fill up the place of what was not thought convenient then to print. A project for the universal benefit of mankind. The author, having laboured so long and done so much to serve and instruct the public, without any advantage to himself, has at last thought of a project which will tend to the great benefit of all mankind, and produce a handsome revenue to the author. He intends to print by subscription, in ninety-six large volumes in folio, an exact description of Terra Australis Incognita, collected with great care and prints from nine hundred and ninety-nine learned and pious authors of undoubted veracity. The whole work, illustrated with maps and cuts agreeable to the subject, and done by the best masters, will cost for one guinea, each volume to subscribers one guinea to be paid in advance, and afterwards a guinea on receiving each volume except the last. This work will be of great use for all men, and necessary for all families, 
because it contains exact accounts of all the provinces, colonies, and mansions of that spacious country where, by general doom, all transgressors of the law are to be transported, and every one having this work may choose out the fittest and best place for himself, there being enough for all, so as every one shall be fully satisfied. The author supposes that one copy of this work will be bought at the public charge, or out of the parish rates, for every parish church in the three kingdoms, and in all the dominions thereunto belonging, and that every family that can command ten pounds per annum, even though retrenched from less necessary expenses, will subscribe for one. He does not think of giving out above nine volumes nearly, and considering the number requisite, he contends to print at least a hundred thousand for the first edition. He is to print proposals against next term with a specimen and a curious map of the capital city with its twelve gates, from a known author who took an exact survey of it in a dream. Considering the great care and pains of the author and the usefulness of the work, he hopes every one will be ready, for their own good as well as his, to contribute cheerfully to it, and not grudge him the profit he may have by it, especially if he comes to a third or fourth edition, as he expects it will very soon. He doubts not, but it will be translated into foreign languages by most nations of Europe, as well as Asia and Africa, being of as great use to all those nations as to his own. For this reason he designs to procure patents and privileges for securing the whole benefit to himself from all those different princes and states, and hopes to see many millions of this great work printed in those different countries and languages before his death. After this business is pretty well established, he has promised to put a friend on another project almost as good as this, by establishing insurance offices everywhere for securing people from shipwreck and several other accidents in their voyage to this country, and these officers shall furnish, at a certain rate, pilots well versed in the route, and know all the rocks, shelves, quicksands, etc., that such pilgrims and travellers may be exposed to. Of these he knows a great number ready instructed in most countries, but the whole scheme of this matter he is to draw up at large and communicate to his friend. End of part 12. End of A Tale of a Tub by Jonathan Swift. Recorded by Edmund Bloxham in Taipei.